Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Blood from a Turnip by Jim Thompson. This is first published in Collier's, December 20th, 1952. I am uh, not a regular Collier's reader. I've never really been a regular Collier's reader. But when I get an issue, um, they have premier high-level writing from high-paid writers. And this is just a one-page story. It's They called it a short short. Um, but anything by Jim Thompson, I'm willing to read. This is, I think, the second Jim Thompson we've done as a podcast, the first being more fantasy-related. This is more um, in his regular bailiwick, um, although it's not technically a crime story. I don't think there's any criminal activity at all, but it does hang out with a lot of lowlifes, or um, uh, as, as one writer put it, uh, Jim Thompson is the dime store Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, um, which I thought was uh, about right. <laughs> These guys are on the edge of of starvation, the edge of of uh, good society, and uh, not likely to do better. Um, I, I don't know how, how much Jim Thompson have you read. I have not read much. I don't go in for hard-boiled detective very often and this man is most known for the grifters which mm-hmm. uh, these days and that is a movie that i've seen and 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 liked admired in fact yeah that, that has a script by donald westlake who himself is a very high-end um <laughs> uh crime crime writer although he also dipped into science fiction and fantasy as well um these guys will write for money <laughs> um <laughs> Jim Thompson, I, I just put him in a context. I think I, I was just looking at a great website called um, Thrilling Detective. It's a very old website, um, older than my website, which t- tells you something. Um, and basically uh, what they do is they they try and do the science fiction or the, uh, the crime and uh, noir, hard-boiled, uh, I don't know, research and collection and detailing that i i think of myself doing so except for science fiction and fantasy they have a lot of details about the writers and and uh, what they wrote in the short stories and where they were published and um essays about them by other writers and just linking it all together they don't have a podcast or um anything like that but uh if they did i would totally be a subscriber um, and they did a poll of, uh, I guess, the Rara Avis um, news group. That was an old news group I used to be a part of. Um, uh, the Rare Bird, you know, from <laughs> uh, the famous uh, Maltese Falcon. Anyways, um, they did a poll of uh, who, is the, who is the writer who, who blew you away when you first read him. And I think it was like uh, D- Dashiell Hammett was first and some other dude was second. And James Elroy was third. And then fourth on the list, Jim Thompson. And of those, uh, you know, Jim Thompson is probably the least known. Uh, he's basically known for the grifters and maybe for one novel 
um, known for the movie of the Grifters and maybe for one novel and didn't get a lot of respect during his lifetime. Um, this is not a substantial story, but I like it not nevertheless. So uh, I'm very curious to hear what you think of it. Uh, but before we get too deep into that, maybe you'll honor us with a reading of it. I'd be happy to read it, although I'm not sure that I can do the voices quite well. Um, but not to uh, to bury the lead, let me just say, I think this is, in fact, in many ways, subtle ways, uh, as well as perhaps more obvious ones, quite an admirable story. Hmm. Blood from a Turnip. What a stinking way to make a living. I was thinking this like always as I walked into Duffy's. I buy precious metals house to house, old discarded jewelry, dental work, eyeglasses, anything worth a buck. I pay as little as I can, then I take the stuff to a wholesale buyer like Duffy, and he does the same to me. He did it now. I emptied my buyer's box on the counter. Duffy sat hunched on his high stool, not touching the stuff. He just sat looking at me, a yellowed cigarette stump in his mouth, one pale eye uh, sprouting a black loop. I poked a battered old watch case toward him. 14 carats, stamped 14 carats. So what? Carrot stamps don't mean a thing on old stuff like this. It's just heavy plate, and that's what I'll pay for. I took his price. He was right. Then he gave me $3 even for a handful of gold-washed junk, and I sat down on the bench along the wall to rest my feet and count my profits. For nine hours arguing with suspicious housewives, I had $11 profit and a meal and a hash joint to look forward to. Tulsa Slim came in then, tired and hungry-looking. I waited to see how he'd done for the day. He checked in 25 penny weight, a good half of it, high carat dental gold, and Duffy pushed three $10 bills across the counter. You'll be rich someday, he said sarcastically. At most, you paid out eight bucks, you make 22 for an easy day's work. But Slim didn't smile. <clears throat> he looked miserable. And suddenly, Duffy grinned. Or did you? he said. Is there something you ain't told old Duffy? Some little housewife skin you today? None of your business, Slim snapped. And I knew that's just what had happened, and I started hating Duffy all over again. When you have a lousy day, it's your tough luck. And he laughs in your face. And when you do find gravy, it's Duffy who really collects and laughs all the harder. The occasional finds you make, like a hunk of antique jewelry, keep you in this hungry racket. But even then, it's Duffy or someone like him who gets rich. Once I picked up an antique brooch for $3 and sold it to Duffy for 20 Take it or leave it, he said, and I took it. I had to, like always. I needed the money, and I couldn't hang on to the brooch and wait, but Duffy could. And three weeks later, he sold that brooch to some collector for 20 times $20. And he laughed in my face when he told me. That same mocking pleasure was in his face now. Con, he said, what happened? Slim looked at him, hating him, wishing like we all did that just once Duffy would have to take it instead of dishing it out. But he opened his box, reached inside, then paused and said, every once in a while, I learned that Maybe honesty's the best policy. Maybe you'll learn that someday yourself. Duffy just grinned. 
I stop at this house, Slim said wearily, and the dame has the usual cardboard box of family hand-me-downs, large emblems, tie pins, a watch chain, all gold wash. But there's also a watch, an old turnip. I'm no expert on antique watches like Al, he nodded at me, but at least I can recognize one. I strolled over to the counter. Old watches are my specialty. All I was thinking of, Slim said, was getting the watch for a couple bucks, so I never even touched it or glanced at it. You single out one item and these dames think it's the Taj Mahal. Two dollars for the box full, lady, I said. She wants to argue, but I just pick up my hat. Three dollars, she says then. Two fifty, I said, and she takes it. Slim took his hand out of his box. He was holding a black and old watch, and Duffy threw me a quick warning look. Slim took his hand out of his box. He was holding a black and old watch, and Duffy threw me a quick warning look. I'd seen photographs of the four other watches in the world, like this one. One is in a museum. Two others are in private collections. A Connecticut watchmaker turned out five of them 60 years ago for five young Victorian dandies. They were key winders with jewel-studded keys, and they weren't good watches. But today... The keys make those watches collector's pieces. A collector's item, Slim said angrily. I thought I had myself a collector's item, but look. He tried to turn the watch stem. It wouldn't budge. The damn stem won't turn, he said. You can't even begin to move it. Why, the works in this potato must be solid rust. I thought he was going to slam the watch down on the counter, and I nearly yelled, but he put it down gently. You know, these collectors, he said to me angrily, the watch has to work, has to keep time or they don't shell out. So there you are. There, he said more quietly. Then he said more quietly. Maybe honesty is best. If I tried the watch out, took a chance on paying out five bucks if it was any good, I never would have bought it. Too bad, Duffy said casually and picked up the watch. He twisted at the stem, and of course it wouldn't turn. You're right, he said. The works are shot, and he put the watch down. But still, he added, sounding bored, I might pick up a five spot for it with luck. He took two one-dollar bills from his cash drawer and laid them on the counter. So I'll take it off your hands with the rest of the stuff. You're only out 50 cents. You mean it, Slim said, his eyes widening. And when Duffy nodded, he grabbed up the bills and turned toward the door like he was scared Duffy might change his mind. Duffy winked as I turned to leave. He knew what was going, I was going to tell Slim, and he didn't care now that he had the watch. He even got a boot out of the deal. Outside, I just looked at Slim in contempt. The stem won't wind, I burst out. Slim looked at me blankly. Listen, I said as patiently as I could. Up until about 1875, you had to wind a watch with a key, a separate key. That's how they were made. Then somebody invented the stem winder, but the guy who made this watch around 1890 did it on a special order. Some gay blades wanted something unusual. So what does he do? He makes up five key winders with jeweled keys and adds an ornamental stem 
There's nothing wrong with that watch. The stem isn't supposed to turn, you jerk. And Duffy knew it perfectly well. They're collector's pieces today. Why didn't you tell me? With Duffy there? I couldn't, I answered. The last one of those watches brought $250 at auction. And it was exactly like the one you sold Duffy for two lousy bucks. Of course, it had the original key, and that makes a difference. The collectors not only want the watch, but the key. But even without it, that old turnip will still bring 50 maybe $60. Slim looked astonished. And with the original key, it might have brought 200 Easy, I said, rubbing it in. <laughs> well, Slim shrugged. I wouldn't have got a fair price anyway. Even if I'd walked in with a watch and key both, Duffy would have got them for 50 bucks top. Remember that antique brooch you found? Yeah, I said sadly. And now he's got your old two-buck turnip, and it'll bring 50 for sure. That's right, Slim said pleasantly, and pulled his fist out of his pocket, opening his hand. There on his palm coated with the unmistakable tarnish of 60 years, lay a small, jeweled strip of metal, the original key. But now, Slim said, I've got a 200-buck key. He grinned. Now I'll get blood, Duffy's blood, out of that turnip, because now he's got to have this key, and for once, he's going to pay for it. Then I grinned, too, and we went triumphantly back into Duffy's. <laughs> that is, uh, uh, I, I didn't see the ending coming. Um, I, I read a review where somebody says, oh, it was okay, but I saw the ending coming. Like, I don't think I'm that dense. I, I, I didn't see it coming. I didn't, even, I didn't even have an expectation. I was like, just a sad. But I love the, the setup for this. They, they go in. One at a time, right? Um, he tells us the terrible thing that he has to look forward to, right? He's he's got uh, fourteen bucks and or what's three bucks and a oh eleven dollars profit and a, ha a meal at a hash house to look forward to. Um, but just just for reference, I should point out that eleven dollars in uh, in nineteen fifty two is equal to about one hundred and seven dollars today in twenty nineteen. That was a good day. That was a good day for him. Right? That was a good day. Yeah, um, and and then the the other guy comes in and he's he is a mirror of our our narrator, um, Al. There's three characters. Duffy is the uh, the uh, what to say? Yeah, is that the right word? It's almost like a a pawn shop, right? It's not really. Uh, I don't know. He's the dealer, anyways. Um, melts down gold and turns it into new gold right um and then there's duffy al and slim so al and slim are mirrors of each other they're both in this racket and they they both give out their stuff and they both get screwed and uh on the way out the dealer's laughing at them both right laughing in different ways but laughing and they've both been in similar situations before and since <laughs> and then they go right back in and now they've got the upper hand for once 
Uh, that's the the whole outline. Of, sorry, very simple. Um, but the the first thing that got me after I saw Jim Thompson uh, as a name, other than the very nice art that comes with it, and these two old old guys um, talking outside just right before they turn around, I guess, into the illustration, is the title, Blood from a Turnip. And I, I didn't know this expression. I have heard Blood from a Stone, and I understand what that means, but apparently the, the, that expression is fairly widespread and pretty much the equivalent of Blood from a Stone. In this case, it actually has another meaning. Um, you know, the, those old uh, pocket watches with a, a winder on the stem is a called a turnip watch. So I can see where he got the idea for the title, but uh, I see how he has also put, uh, that is Thompson's put, uh, put this, this character who you can never squeeze anything out of in as that, <laughs> that, um, that title metonymy, if you know what I mean. Titular uh, Beg your pardon? The titular metonymy. The, the, um, Duffy is squeezed, is, or is about to be squeezed. You know, right. giving up something he wouldn't have otherwise given up, which is right. money, because they're not in good position. His story reminds me a lot of, of um, stories coming out of the Klondike during the gold rush, where, you know, somebody would, you know, they're out there panning for gold, and this is literally what they're doing, right? They go around every day trying to find gold, squeezing housewives, washing. <laughs> they even use the word gold wash over and over again, right? So they're, they're panning through, and they're getting excited, and, and then they take their gold in uh, to a dealer who turns it in, you know, gives them cash for it. Uh, but the people who really made money during the gold rush are actually the people who sold the equipment and the people who bought the the gold. There were these, you know, Klondike kings who came up and sp- made a big splash and got rich, but generally they lost their money immediately thereafter, you know, spending it and because they weren't businessmen, they were, you know, panished for gold. So this is like a, a minor victory story. But I, I love I love <laughs> how much it is packed into this very sh- small amount of space and it's almost all through through dialogue and uh, sort of minimal reflection on on what's going on in this sort of seedy edge edge case for a very profitable business which is jewelry right yeah so that's those are the things that uh, excited me about this story what about you well um uh... I like the idea of thinking of turnip as a metonym for for Duffy. But what caught my attention was that the phrase blood from a turnip is an example of a different rhetorical trope, an apodoton, which is a term that's much less well known than metonymy. Uh, Anapodoton uh, comes from the Greek meaning without a main clause. It's uh, the rhetorical device of using something with the expectation that the audience will know the rest. Mm. So if I say to you, uh, you know, you say to me, uh, so what did you do when you were uh, 
uh, on vacation in uh, in Florida, and I say when in Rome. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it has nothing to do with what I would do in Rome. It means whatever one does in Florida, that's what I was doing, because one is supposed to know that the phrase is "when in Rome, do just as the Romans." Mm-hmm. Uh, when in Rome, spoken all by itself, is an example of anapodaton. Mm-hmm. Blood from a turnip is also an example of anapodaton. It's part of the phrase which. I knew, uh, maybe it's because of the difference in our ages that it was more familiar to me, or the difference in the the side of the continent where each of us grew up. Mm -hmm. But the whole phrase is, you can't get blood from a turnip, Mm -hmm. which I've always thought was a rather clever phrase because in my mind, visually, I contrast it with a a beat, right? I mean, turnips and beets look a lot alike, but, but you can get... Um, heme-based chemicals out of a beet. In fact, they're they're used to uh, make the blood in fake vegetable-based hamburgers these days. Mm. Um, So the phrase, blood from a turnip, enlists the reader in a participation in which we're going, you can't get blood from a turnip. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an old expression. It's one based on experience. And it tells us, well, what we know from the past tells us what we can expect from the future. You know, this is a turnip, so you can't get blood from it. What's so marvelous about this story, or one of the things that I find marvelous about this story, is that we get set up to understand that Duffy, as you say, metonymically a turnip, you can't get blood from him either. Mm -hmm. We have stories about how he... He managed to stand on his existing capital to make other people have to give him stuff at a low price, which he could then turn into his own uh, enrichment. So we know from past experience, you can't get blood from Duffy. When you said, Jesse, that you hadn't anticipated this ending, I think Thompson has set it up quite cleverly so that you shouldn't be able to anticipate this ending. We're supposed to be able to think that Duffy knows. In fact, Al knows what's going on, but he realizes his livelihood is dependent upon Duffy. Mm-hmm. So he can't he can't share that knowledge with Tulsa Slim. So what we've got here is not only a story in which Duffy is the turnip from whom one can get blood. But we have a story in which we, the readers, are equally well taught that past experience does not necessarily tell us what the future will be. That this story said, aha, you see, you can get blood from this turnip. (laughs) Don't trust the old adage You perceive it a certain way, and therefore it has a certain outcome. If you perceived it differently, it might have a different outcome. This is a story not only about revenge on Duffy, but, among other things, about how we perceive. And one of the things that, to me, another one of the things that makes the story valuable is the way in which it argues that what's going on here is simply a reflection of human nature. That is, 
the housewives are trying to get the most money they can. Mm-hmm. That's why Slim won't let himself show any interest in a particular item. The scavengers are trying to get the most money they can. That's why they are sort of casual in the way they present things to Duffy. Duffy is trying to get the most money that he can. And at the top or bottom, depending upon how you look at it, of this monitorized chain of people living off the desires of other people. Because let's face it, jewelry is not something that is functional. That's right. right. It's just it's just something people want Um, at the top or bottom of this chain are the people with the most money, the people who can afford to have something just because they want to have it. It need have no other use than to satisfy their own acquisitiveness. So this is a story about human nature. We wind up, at least I do, sympathizing with with Slim. And through him, Al, as you say, they sort of are doppelgangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's because we like his tone of voice. He recognizes what people are. He's willing to admit it. And by golly, he's down on his luck. What a stinking way to make a living it starts. And we kind of think, too bad you have to make a living in such a stinking way. So we're glad when... The next step, the next rung in this ladder turns out to be conquerable by these guys. But frankly, when you think about it, from a moral standpoint, honesty is the best policy. That's that's the other old saying that comes up in this Mm -hmm. story. And it turns out that honesty isn't the best policy. That's right. And I love I love that he he he's cursing himself for saying, well, he's saying, uh, it's actually what's really cool is there is a con going on and that uh so slim doesn't know that al's in there ahead of him so when he goes in and he he dumps his his buyer's box um and and he gets hosed (laughs) Uh, and then al uh sees that he gets hosed al doesn't say anything he 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 says aha something my duffy Pokes him in the right way. Oh, maybe you did get hosed at your at your buying, and he does, but not in the stuff that he's just dumped on the counter. Rather, he's got something in his pocket where he, yeah, he just got screwed, right? <laughs> and that prompts him to pull it out. Now, there's a great little wink, um, and I'll just read that part here. Uh, it's in the second column. But Duffy could, and three weeks later, he sold that brooch to some collector for twenty times $20, and he laughed in my face when he told me. That's actually not the part I was trying to bring up. Um, anyways, there's a, a little wink where... Ah, here it is, a little farther down. But there's also a watch, an old turnip. I'm no expert on antique watches like Al. He nodded at me, but at least I can recognize one. So, he's nodding at me in order to uh, to say, you know, you're the expert on expert watches. He says, yeah, I am. Um, but he, Al doesn't say something that he knows that would possibly help Slim, as you point out, because it would hurt him in Duffy's eyes, right? Duffy might refuse to buy from him, in which case he'd be screwed. And we also know that this isn't the only buyer he sells to, because 
he only got uh, three bucks from Duffy, but he made eleven dollars profit. So he's he's been out to a bunch of places and selling at different places, different stuff. So these guys are on like a kind of a collection route. They go out and they collect and they go from place to place to sell. They're in competition with each other, but they're also in a similar situation. Obviously, Duffy's got competition too, um, but perhaps uh, being in the better position, right? So there's all sorts of levels of of who is getting hosed by whom. And then when he says, yeah, you should, if honesty was your best policy, he sort of insults Duffy, right? And then when they go out and Slim hears the truth from Al, turns out Al knew all along, right? He knew this fact about the watch and he was planning to do that in the first place. So, you mean Slim? Uh, yes. So uh, Slim was, uh, Slim knew that the watch had value and that it didn't have this aspect of, having solid rust inside, right? I think this, it's a very clever story because it not, as you point out, everybody's sort of getting hosed and we're part of that, right? As readers, we are sort of a view, viewer on this, but we get tricked into reading and enjoying the story. Now, there's one other level that I just, I started to pick up as you're reading it and I'm like, yeah, I noticed, and I, I'd been highlighting these things before. For example, um, when Sli- uh, I'm just going to read this uh, when Slim comes in. Tulsa Slim came in then, tired and hungry looking. Well, just like our character, just like Al, he's tired and hungry, right? Um, he's looking forward to that hash house meal later. Hash house, not the best kind of restaurant, but it's solid food, right? Um, and then I started noticing a bunch of other things, these hungry, hungry guys. Um... First of all, there's the carrots. <laughs> um, 24 carrots. Yeah, that's not even right. Okay, and then we get uh, the description of the, um, of the watch, which is called a turnip because of its shape. And then when he tries to budge the stem of the, of the uh, watch winder, he says, you can't even begin to move it. Why this work, the work's in this, potato must be a must be solid rust and of course we go back right to the title blood from a turnip so we've got carrots potatoes turnips gravy <laughs> oh, uh, gravy comes up as well um uh because gravy is valuable right um and then uh, uh, it's a uh, one of these uh food pro- it's it's what it's you're being good condition if you're in gravy right these sort of expressions that come up um and i'll just read that part here and when you do find gravy. It's Duffy who really collects and laughs all the harder. The, the occasional finds you make, like a hunk of antique jewelry, keep you in this hungry racket. Um, so there's this second level where it's all about food. And that makes me think of the famous you know, European folktale about, about stone soup. Mm-hmm. You know how uh, that one goes, right? There's this guy and he's really hungry. And he has nothing to nothing to eat, so he he's a he's actually a con man, right? And what does he do? I I don't even know how, where this story comes from, but I know the story. He 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 convinces other basically hobos to contribute to the soup that he's making, and he's going to provide the most important part, which is the stone. So he puts the stone in the pot, 
and he's looking forward to it, and he's all hungry about it, and he's rubbing his hands together, and some other homeless dude comes by and says, boy, that, that soup really go down real nice right now. He said, well, you know, if you had something to contribute to it, it would make it all the better. <laughs> yeah. Put all of these things together, and what he got? A nice little soup. A grift. Uh, it is a grift. But I love that uh, this, this story is that, right? There's almost nothing there. The, the, re- the reason I like that, though, is, as you say, we're part of it. Yes. Th- this story is telling us something about gender roles. It's housewives versus scavengers. It tells us something about um, capitalism. It's those who live on the fringes versus those who can afford to have a permanent place, property owners. Mm -hmm. It tells us things about aging. It tells us things about perception. It tells us things about language. And your connection between eating and the story and what I had pointed out, that it's about making a living. Food is crucial to being able to live. And I would point out that that although carrot for jewelry and carrot for food are spelled differently, you're right. They sound that they are homophonous. Carrot, potato and turnip are all root vegetables. Mm -hmm. They exist underground. You can't see them until you take them out. Mm hmm. And they are what produce the plant. But we, in this story, are entirely dependent upon the thing that's hidden. Uh, To the extent that we think about food, why, that hash place is where you kind of get to go once you've made the money. The equivalence between money and survival in this monetary society, this happens to be capitalist, Uh, society runs all through this story. That's Mm -hmm. why I said when we began, I actually think it's quite an admirable story. Mm -hmm. The more we think about the relationships, the use of language, the connection to so many crucial aspects of social structure, I think the more we realize there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.